Thank you, Kathy, for reading God's word for us this morning and for introducing us uh, to the book of Nehemiah, where we will be spending the next four weeks. Um, My name is Bill Gorman, and I serve as the campus pastor here at the Brookside campus. It's good to see all of you. Thanks for being here with us, gathering together to worship um, as a congregation here in this place this morning. Um, It's really good to be with you. And uh, as we prepare to open God's Word to look at this book of Nehemiah, and we will be spending the next four weeks, we are kind of moving pretty quickly through the Bible. We're going to pause just for a little bit and spend some time here in Nehemiah because we just think there's so much uh, good here that we want to just spend some time uh, soaking in for these next few weeks. And as we prepare to do that, I would love uh, to pray and ask for God's help as we open His Word together. Um, Father in heaven, we are thankful that you have revealed your word to us. We thank you for the gift that it is. Um, We thank you that you have, um, in in our country, that we have it so accessible to us, that we can listen to it online, that we can read it on our phones, that we have it in print in a myriad of different ways. I pray that we wouldn't ignore it. I pray that we would, uh, would not become so familiar with it that it doesn't continue to grip um, our hearts and change our lives. We know that it's only the work of the Spirit that ultimately can, can do that work of, of challenge and encouragement and conviction. So we pray even now for your Spirit to be at work through your word. Uh, we ask this in Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, for your glory, Father. Amen. Well, did you hear, did you hear, how many times did you ask that question Or were you asked that question this week? Did you hear about the bombings in Boston? Did you hear about the explosion at the fertilizer plant in Texas? Uh, Did did you hear about the manhunt for the suspects? Did you hear about the police officer who was killed? Did you hear that they got him? This week was full of did-you-hear moments I remember I was in the office on Monday and I was actually filling out an expense report and I happened to glance down at my phone and I saw an alert on, from AP Mobile and it said, bombing at the Boston Marathon. And this news immediately arrested my attention, not only as a story of violence and terror, but I knew several people who were running uh, the marathon that day and, and thankfully they were fine, they were unhurt, they had finished before the bombs went off. But also it grabbed my attention as someone who's run a number of marathons and half marathons myself, I can so vividly picture the the finish line of a race and the joy of that moment of crossing that line and the range of emotions of joy and relief and excitement to find family and friends. And whether you have a personal connection to Boston or not, the brokenness of that day compels us. There's a tug inside of us that feels compelled to do something, to help in some way. Brokenness compels us to try to understand what seems incomprehensible. I mean, how could someone do this? How could we humans, you and me, be capable of such evil? Well, Christians believe that human rebellion against God is what has invited violence and selfishness and greed and disease and agony into God's good world. And not just into the world sort of out there, but we realize in our most honest moments that that brokenness, that that cancer lives inside of each one of us. If only it was outside of us, if only it was in other people, but we realize that a dividing line cuts through each one of our hearts between good and evil. 
You see, the Christian answer to the question, what is wrong with the world, is ultimately this, that that we are wrong with the world, that we have chosen this path. G.K. Chesterton, the great British author, once responded to a newspaper question that asked, what's wrong with the world? And he just wrote a postcard and simply wrote on it, I am. I am what's wrong with the world. We long to go back home, back to the garden, back to Eden, back to the place of perfect harmony, of peace, of security. I mean, that's why these things, these events, whether it's the fertilizer plant exploding in Texas or the bombing of Boston, the reason that these things appall us, the reason that they grab us, that they, that they caused us such pain is that we realize this is not the way it was supposed to be. That this is not the world that we were intended to live in. Because for however faint we have a memory, somehow we have a memory of the garden, of a place where violence, where selfishness, where greed, where hatred didn't exist. I mean, why else would we cry out? And yes, Christians believe that through Christ we are moving in the direction of home, that justice will be served, that all that is lost will be restored, that this world, yes, even this heart will one day be made right. But what about now? What do we do about it right now? I mean, whether it is the tragedy in Boston or the, the injustice of human trafficking, even here in Kansas City, the plight of the unborn, poverty in our own neighborhoods, people dying without Christ, suffering of disease, relationships that are crumbling, even just sort of the crippling weight of our own sin. What about now? How do we respond to these things now? You see, brokenness compels us. It pushes us forward. It compels us to long for redemption, to be foretastes of redemption. With the darkness in our world, who can just sit on their hands and wait it out? Not me. Not us, not God's people, not his church. You see, brokenness compels us. And I think sometimes it's easy to feel like we're alone in in the brokenness of this world or that our time is somehow unique in the brokenness that we feel. But 2,500 years ago, there were people who felt just like we do. Actually worse, perhaps. Their entire city lay in ruins. A city that had once been glorious was now constantly oppressed by enemies. It was the target of incessant racism and greed, and they had no way to protect themselves. Where God had once dwelled with them, they now had nothing. And yet God heard their cries, and he gave them someone to lead them, Nehemiah. The brokenness that Nehemiah encountered compelled him to weep, to pray, to work, and to trust. And the brokenness that we witness compels us to do the same. So as we look at Nehemiah chapters 1 and 2 this morning, we're going to see that brokenness compels us to weep, to pray, to work, and to trust. To weep, pray, work, and trust. 
In a few days, uh, many of us, along with Open Here, will be reading this, this little book. And if you have given up on the reading plan, I was talking to someone the other day, and I'm like, I just don't know. I've kind of gotten behind on this whole reading plan. If you've given up on the reading plan, or, or maybe you haven't jumped in yet, this would be a great time to jump in in Nehemiah. It's a great little book. It's probably one that a lot of us haven't read or haven't read recently. And we're going to be spending some good time in it. So I would encourage you to pick it up, to read it. We're going to be spending four weeks on Sunday mornings looking at it. I would encourage you to grab a copy of the reading plan if you don't have one. It's back there. You can sign up online like John mentioned as well. And, uh, you know, if you want to turn to Nehemiah chapter 1, I invite you to do that. You may have to use the table of contents. It's not one that we go to a lot. Um, but it's after, uh, after first and, uh, it's kind of in, in the story after First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. But you see where it comes in your table of contents and turn there. First we see in Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, we see that brokenness compels us to weep. Brokenness compels us to weep. And we need to pause here for a minute and kind of get our bearings at where we're at in the story. And I have a timeline just to kind of give us some, a, a sense of where we're at because we've been moving pretty quickly through the story. As we saw last week, Israel refused to follow God and everything began to follow apart. Everything began to fall apart. Last week we witnessed their, their exile and their enslavement. The Babylonians dis- destroyed, I know this is kind of small, but you can see 586 BC, the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, and they ex- exiled some of the inhabitants off to Babylon. But again, God never gives up on his people. And 50 years later, a few Israelites are return- allowed to return back to their homeland in 516 BC. And then in 458 BC, Ezra, and there's a book named after him too, um, right before Nehemiah, Ezra returns to Jerusalem, and he's a priest, he's a spiritual leader, a pastor, and he begins to help the people discover God's word and the law of God again. And in 445, just a few years after Ezra has returned, we meet Nehemiah, this Jewish man He's living in exile in the Persian Empire. He's far, far from home. And he's working for the king. You see, the the Persians are pretty much in charge of everything at this point. You had the Assyrians. They were conquered by the Babylonians. And then the Persians conquered them. And I think I have a map here. You can see that too. So all of that green area is the Persian Empire. They've conquered all of Assyria and Babylon. And now they control all of pretty much the known world to them at this point. And if you look here, you can see where Jerusalem is. That's where the Jews, Jewish homeland was. But Nehemiah is all the way over here in Susa. He's, this is where he's living. He's working for the king. But everything is about to change for Nehemiah. In December of 445, a few Israelites who had recently visited Jerusalem return to Susa and they give Nehemiah a report. Nehemiah's story begins with a did you hear moment. One of his brothers brings him news. Did you hear the people who survived the exile who were sent back? They're in great trouble and in great shame. The wall of Jerusalem is still broken down. Its gates have been destroyed by fire. And what is Nehemiah's reaction to these words? He weeps. He starts to actually cry. Notice the first part of verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. So why does Nehemiah weep when he hears this news? What about this moment? What about the news that the walls are broken down, that the gates have been burned, and this moment causes him to weep? 
We see in the ancient Near East, a city was all about its wall. What made a city a city was the fact that it had a wall around it. If, if you didn't have a wall around your city, you were just another village kind of out on the plain that was susceptible to attack or pillage. What made a city a city was its wall. I mean, think about Jericho, right? Earlier in our story, once the wall was broken down, they could, the Israelites could take over the city. And so Jerusalem without a wall was a city without an identity. It was a city that had no security. And so when Nehemiah hears that the wall has still not been rebuilt, that its gates are still burned, he realizes that his homeland, the capital of his homeland, still doesn't have its identity. It still has no security. They had no way of protecting themselves. They had tried to build a wall, but the governor of Sumeria, of the part of the region where Jerusalem was under the control of the Persians, had put a stop to the work And so Nehemiah hears this news that the wall is still broken down, that Israel is still experiencing great shame. It it has no identity as a city. And he weeps. When is the last time that brokenness compelled you to weep? Why don't we weep more? We encounter the brokenness in the world, and it's all around us, right? Mourning and weeping should be our first response. And, and I know that not all of us are the crying type, that our first reaction to news that is of brokenness isn't always to cry. I'm not necessarily the one who always starts crying, physically crying. But what is breaking our hearts in the world? Maybe tears don't come easily for you, but what, do you allow brokenness to cause you to feel something? I think so often we're insulated from the realities of suffering that when we do encounter real suffering, we quickly either move to apathy or, or, or indifference. On the one hand, it's, it seems so overwhelming that we just kind of have to move to an apathetic place of, of not caring. Or on the other hand, maybe we just become indifferent because there's so much brokenness in the world and we have so much access to information that it just becomes overwhelming. Or, or maybe we don't become apathetic or indifferent, but maybe we just start to become cynical. That, that nothing ever is ever going to change in the world. That, that brokenness, that death, that terror, that violence, that hunger, that poverty, that this is just the way the world is. And we just become cynical as a way of protecting ourselves from feeling that brokenness. However, in these moments, God calls us to weep to see evil, to see sin, to see brokenness for what they are and what they're doing to the world and to mourn. Paul writes in in his letter to the Romans, uh, chapter 12, verse 15, he says that Christians are to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. So often we are quick to jump in with solutions and quick fixes when what people really need most is for us to weep with them. I know I find this true in my relationship even with Rachel that there's these moments when, when she just needs to feel with me and not for me to try and fix the problem. And I think this is a microcosm of so often how we approach people and situations in our world. We don't take the time just to feel the impact of what has happened. We just quickly want to figure out, well, what can we do to fix it? How can we, we jump in with action? Do we take time to weep, to mourn? For days, Nehemiah wept and mourned. 
So what has God put into your heart? I mean, today, like I said, with the internet, with cable news, we have an unprecedented 24-7, 365 access to just a myriad of broken situations around the world, whether it's a civil war in Syria or poverty in sub-Saharan Africa or countless other things. We can turn on the news at any point and see brokenness and tragedy. And no one has the capacity to weep for it all, right? We, we don't have this, the time or the emotional energy to feel all of it. But what has God placed in your heart? I'm reminded of what Bob Pierce, the founder of World Vision, said. He said, this was his prayer. He said, break my heart with the things that break the heart of God. Break my heart with the things that break the heart of God. What has God placed into your heart that when you see it, it makes it break. You see, God is the main actor here in this story. It is Nehemiah's faith in the God of heaven that moves him to engage, to risk it all. If we look further on in the story in Nehemiah 2.12, he says that God put it in his heart to do this thing, to go to Jerusalem, to restore the wall. What has God put into your heart? If we say that brokenness compels us to respond, then we do need to wrestle with, confront why we so often don't respond to the brokenness that we see. Is it apathy? Is it, is it fear? Is it the fact that we're just isolated or insulated from it? Um, maybe, it's, maybe it's cynicism has sunk in. And we just think that nothing that we could do would make a difference. If you're not weeping over anything, ask God to place something into your heart to break your heart if necessary. Maybe, maybe it's something in your family or, or an issue at school or with, with a friend. Maybe it's something globally. Maybe it's part, some asset, uh, facet or, or aspect of, of the brokenness of Kansas City. I mean, there's no shortage of options. And believe me, I understand compassion fatigue, right? I mean, this is a, a phenomenon that people, sociologists, are beginning to discover. We hear so many needs, so many pleas for help that we can become deaf to it. We can't be about everything all the time, but we do need to be about something some of the time. What moves you to weep? But Nehemiah doesn't stop with weeping. His, compel, his, his weeping compels him to pray. This is what we see in the, in the next part. If you, the last part of verse 4, he says he continued fasting and then he began to pray before the God of heaven, the text says. In his sorrow, he begins to pray. And, and notice the structure of Nehemiah's prayer here. It, it's actually a great model for all of us in our prayer. There's some great prayers in the Bible that are just great models for us of how to shape our own prayer lives. Paul has many of those, but Nehemiah chapter 1 is a great model for prayer. Look at what he says in the beginning of verse 5. He says, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. You see, he begins his prayer by acknowledging who God is, by worshiping him, by recalling his promises, by appealing to his loyal love. And then he confesses. So he acknowledges who God is, he worships God, but then he also confesses his own brokenness. Look at the middle of verse 6. He says, Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's household have sinned. Do you see his confession isn't only individual, it's also collective. And we live in such an individualistic society that we often forget that we are part of things that are much bigger than us. 
that, that whether we are aware of it or not, whether we are conscious of it or not, that we are part of even systemic brokenness, societal brokenness, that, that we didn't even choose necessarily to be a part of, but that we're complicit in ongoing patterns of oppression or evil that maybe are unavoidable um, in the way that we live our lives, but that we are complicit. Do we confess those things as well? He confesses, God, remember what you told Moses. If you rebel against me, I will scatter you. If you return to me, I will bring you back to my home. God, that's what we want. We want you to bring us back to our homeland. We are repenting. Bring us back to Jerusalem. Be our God once more. And the text says that he did this for four months. Nehemiah prays for four months before any of the action continues in the story. Four months, that's a long time. I mean, we don't do anything for four months. I mean, the thought of praying for four hours for me, and and I'm a pastor, seems like a long time. Nehemiah prays for four months. Again, we're so often eager to move to a phase of action, of engagement. America, we're Americans, I think in particular, we're can-do people. We get stuff done. But do we take time to weep? Do we take time to pray? You see, the thing is that God doesn't just care what gets done. He actually deeply cares about how it gets done and in whose strength it gets done. And prayer is one of the ways that he calls us to engage with the world. And I think one of the hard things for me when I think about praying and taking four minutes, four hours, four months to pray about something is that prayer doesn't feel very productive often. I know on the days that I am the most busy, uh, that I feel like I have the most to do, my impulse is to just get up as early as I can and, and open the laptop as soon as I've got my cup of coffee in my hand and just start cranking. But it's those days, I know it's those days, that I need to actually engage more in prayer, press more into who God is, ask for more of his grace and comfort and wisdom. God doesn't just care about what gets done, but, but how it gets done and in whose power it gets done. So are we praying? Are we praying that God would use us? Do we pray about the things that make us weep? You see, if all we ever do is weep, but never pray, we probably will end up indifferent or apathetic because the world is too broken for any one of us to manage. So if we only stay in a place of weeping, if we only mourn, if we only cry out and lament the brokenness and we never engage in prayer, we will become overwhelmed and we will end up either apathetic or, or bitter. But if we can pray, we can actually engage with the one who can do something about the brokenness in our world. And it's probably no surprise to you, but one of my big passions is for, is for all of you, for our neighborhood, for Kansas City. And my desire is to see us become a congregation that is relentlessly clinging to the good news of the gospel, the good news that the gospel changes everything from the way that we do our work, from the way that we relate to our, our family, our spouses, from the way that we treat people on Facebook who constantly post those annoying political memes that drive us crazy, that it would change everything. But so often, we forget to, I forget to pray. God is the one who builds the walls. 
He is the one who rebuilds lives and hearts and systems and nations and everything that is broken. You see, without prayer, any attempt to fix things will be superficial at best and self-centered at worst. Brokenness compels us to pray. Do we? Do we pray? Brokenness compels us to weep, it compels us to pray, but if, if all we ever do is weep and pray, we have we failed to understand both the nature and magnitude of the brokenness that we face. You see, brokenness compels us to work, to actually take physical action in the world to make things different. I'm a big fan of David Allen and, and getting things done, and he always says, you've got to figure out what's the next physical action you need to take in the world to advance the project. What is the physical action, the next thing we can actually do? Is it sending an email, making a phone call? having a conversation, setting up a meal. What's the next physical thing we can do to advance God's work of redemption in the world? I loved Amy Sherman when she was with us for uh, CG 2013. She talked about us being like those pink spoons that they have at Baskin Robbins to be a, a sample, a foretaste of what God is doing in the world. You see, we don't on our own as the church somehow usher in all that God is gonna do in our own power. No, God is coming one day. He will set all things to right. But in the midst of the brokenness right now, we get to be those samples, those pink spoons, these foretastes of what it will be like when the kingdom comes. So what does it look like for us to engage in that kind of work? It was Martin Luther King who declared with such passion and clarity, when evil men plot, good men must build. When evil men burn and bomb, good men must build and bind. When evil men shout ugly words of hatred, good men must commit themselves to the glories of love. This kind of action, this kind of work in the world that brokenness compels us to takes great courage. Look at Nehemiah's display of courage. Chapter one ends with this Interesting phrase. It almost just seems thrown in. Look at the end of chapter one, the very last sentence. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. Why are we given this little detail? This almost seems throwaway. Just this little sentence. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. Well, basically, Nehemiah was a Jewish slave, but he had a pretty cushy slave life. He was in a high, high position. The cupbearer was an advisor. It was the, he was the wine taster. He was an intimate person in the king's court. He gives us a little window into his vocation, his job. He was a cupbearer. That's what he did Monday through Saturday, probably seven days a week. I don't know if they got time off back then, if you were a slave. He tells us about his vocation You see, he lived in a palace in a place of proximity to one of the richest, most powerful men who has ever lived. And and not unlike many of us, he was living the good life. I mean, Nehemiah, he was a slave, yes, but he had a pretty good life. Like many of us have pretty good, comfortable lives. He was insulated from the troubles, the brokenness, the, the broken down walls of Jerusalem. Remember how far he was on the map? from I mean, that, that was a world away. And yet he sees his vocation as a pathway, not for his own self-fulfillment and comfort, but as a gift to be stewarded for the good and flourishing of others. It would have been so easy for Nehemiah just to say, wow, that sounds really bad, what you're telling me, brother, about Jerusalem. Um, I'll I'll pray about that for you, but I'm just going to kind of stay here in my cushy job 
in Susa working for the king. You see, we remember we can determine how well we are stewarding the power that we've been entrusted with by asking the simple question, who is flourishing because I have power? Who's flourishing because I have power? And, and Nehemiah doesn't take his vocational power, his power as someone who's in this key vocational role, lightly. Um, he has access to the king, and he's willing to give up everything, even to risk his life, to change something in the world. The king, Artaxerxes, likely had forbidden the rebuilding of the wall. Remember what we said earlier that the, the, the governors in the area around Jerusalem had put a stop to the work. They were trying to rebuild the wall with Ezra, but they had put a stop to the work. And now Nehemiah is going and saying, um, King, could you maybe actually reconsider that? And maybe the king hadn't gotten, the decision hadn't gotten that far up the chain, maybe someone lower down. But he's basically asking the king to reverse something that has already been decided by his lower officials which is a risky thing to do in that world. This wasn't kind of the democratic process where he could sort of bring a bill and petition to change the law. This could mean the end of his life. So he asked the king a favor. And even if all goes well, even if the king doesn't just decide to fire him or off him in that moment, he's going to be stepping forward into a difficult mission He's going to be stepping forward into a life of of discomfort, of risk. So look at Nehemiah chapter 2. This is what happens. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year, King Artaxerxes, when the wine was before him, I took him the wine and I gave it to him. And now I had not been sad in his presence. He hadn't, Nehemiah hadn't shown his sadness, his weeping in the presence of the king yet. But he does today. And And the king said to him, why is your face sad? Seeing you are not sick, this is nothing but sadness of the heart. And then look at what Nehemiah says. He says, then I was very much afraid. Courage doesn't mean not being fearful. He says, then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face be sad? Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by the fires? And the king said to me, what are you requesting? And I love this, so I prayed. See, he hasn't stopped the praying thing yet. He still is doing that. So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in the sight, then send me to Judah and to the city of my father's graves that I may rebuild it. And what I love about this is basically Nehemiah is not only asking for permission to rebuild the walls, he's asking for a leave of absence. And then later on in the text, he actually asks Nehemiah, or Artaxerxes, actually to pay for the rebuilding work. He goes and he says, send me letters with letters of authority sanctioning this project. And and he gets this unlimited access to the king's forest for all the supplies. He basically says, by the way, would you let me do this? Would you let me take off, I don't know how, maybe a few years off of work? And would you pay for all of this work to be done. That's a bold request. No wonder it says, and I was afraid. (laughs) See, courage isn't an opposition to fear, but it's trusting God in the midst of fear. He immediately prays, and then he does what God has called him to do. So where has God placed you? I mean, you read Nehemiah's story, and you think, wouldn't it be awesome to be Nehemiah? I mean, he gets this book of the Bible named after him. Granted, it's not one of the books we read a lot, but, but we should. 
God, but so much of his story is simply based on the fact that he was the cupbearer to the king. I mean, he was just in the right place at the right time. And the good hand of God was upon him. So we're not all going to be Nehemiah, but where has God placed you? What is the unique place of vocation that you've been called to? What for this time in Kansas City's history, in the history of, of our neighborhood, where have you, what, what power in your vocation, what role in your vocation do you have that you can make this a better place to live? I mean, maybe you're a stay-at-home mom who's passionate about kids, and that's where God has placed you, to love those kids, to pour into them. And and why not find more kids in your neighborhood who you can continue to do that with? Not only your own kids, but maybe it's having the neighbor kids over, pouring into them, caring for them as well. If you're in business, how can you use your tools, your education, your influence to better those around you in our city? Maybe you're retired. Maybe you are not getting paid to work any longer. But you still have resources, skills, you have time. Maybe perhaps the greatest resources that you have is time. Where are you investing? If you're a student, what do you see in your school or with your friends? Where has God placed you? What power has he given you? And is that power being used to see other people flourish? I love how Old Testament scholar Bruce Walk, he defines the righteous in the Old Testament. He says, the righteous disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The righteous disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The wicked, he says, disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. The wicked disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. Brokenness compels us to disadvantage ourselves for the good of the place where we have been called to live and to love. Finally, we're called and compelled to trust. Thank God that we are not on our own. God is clearly orchestrating the events in Nehemiah's life. Nehemiah is compelled to trust. Brokenness compels us to trust. You see, the problem is too big. The walls are too big. Our sin, our own personal brokenness is too big. The real problems in our world are far too big for any of us. But God is truly bigger. He is the one who rebuilds walls, who redeems relationships, who heals heartaches. He delights to use us, but but he doesn't need us. He doesn't have to use us. I love C.S. Lewis. He says, if God condescends to use us, it's not because he needs us, but because we need to be used. That God delights to use us. He doesn't need us, but he's invited us into the work that he's doing. And so we trust. As, as chapter 2 continues, Nehemiah ends up, he travels to Jerusalem. He takes a tour around the city at night. I love this moment. He, it's the pitch black. He's just gotten there. He grabs a few of his trusted advisors and they ride around the city. And the rubble is so broken and it, they can't, their horses are even having trouble. Their, their donkeys are having trouble getting over the rubble. That's how badly broken down the walls are. And as he does this, he confronts the brutal facts. There's no naive optimism here. Look at what he says in verse 17. You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. He's not at all Pollyanna about the problem. You see, we as God's people of all people should never be blindly optimistic for we know how truly deeply broken the world is. We know that it's not just education or or sociology that, that is causing the world to be broken. We know that the depth of brokenness lies in each one of our hearts. So we should never be naively optimistic but also we should never give up hope. 
You see Nehemiah trusts. He never loses hope that they will succeed. Look at verse 20. He says, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build. He faces the brutal facts. He never loses hope that God is at work and will use them. This is how we have to be in the midst of a broken world, facing the brutal facts, never giving up hope. Nehemiah's work ultimately isn't his work. It's God's work. And we are his servants. God cares about the things that we care about far more than we do. God loves Kansas City. He loves Brookside. He loves our country far more than any of us do. He knows its brokenness. He weeps for it more deeply than any of us do. So do we trust him? That he cares and he's going to be at work. Who are we relying on to rebuild the walls in our, in our own lives, in our city? Next week we're going to see that this isn't an easy process. They're going to encounter some serious opposition. But the fact is that God is at work. In fact, the mission that Nehemiah has accepted is nearly impossible, and the things that God calls us to are never easy. If you are looking for an easy life, then Jesus isn't for you. The church isn't for you. The work of redemption is not for you. It's not easy, but it is good. And so often we get discouraged because we get so overwhelmed, but remember, you are not the savior of the universe. You're not the savior of the city. That, that Jesus, the God of the universe, has that job pretty well locked up. And that actually gives us great hope. So what would it look like for Christ's community, for the local churches God designed it to be the hope of the world, for us to actually engage with God in this work that he's doing in our world? I pray that God would save us from merely being a social club or, or sort of an inspiring gathering where we come once a week to get filled up, but that we would be a movement so clothed with the good news of the gospel, so filled with this power and love that we are compelled to work, to pray, to weep, to trust. So look at our world. See the brokenness. Weep. Then pray. Work. Work and trust. But how do we trust? How do we trust in a world where the Boston Marathon is bombed? How do we trust in a world where firefighters who are rushing to put out a fire at a a fertilizer plant are, are killed in an explosion? Volunteer firefighters. How do we trust in a world where where kids get cancer and die? There's so much more that we could list. How do we trust in a world like that? We trust because we believe that we as a God who hates brokenness even more than we do. We trust because we believe in a God who doesn't just sit and watch from afar off, but a God who has entered this world. No other belief, there's no other religion can say that, that, that God has come down, that he has taken on human flesh, that he has entered the suffering, that he is intimately acquainted with suffering, that there's no suffering that we can experience that he hasn't also felt and experienced himself. When we look at Jesus He looked out over the city of Jerusalem, the same city that Nehemiah was rebuilding 450 years after Nehemiah, and he wept over the city. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how long will you continue to reject? When Jesus was on earth, he prayed, and he taught his disciples how to pray. 
thy kingdom come. Because ultimately only his kingdom will bring the solution. And Jesus accomplished his great work on the cross. He wept, he prayed, he worked on the cross on our behalf. This ultimate show of love, the promise written in blood that our world will be made one right someday. He conquered the grave. The walls will be rebuilt. Death will not win. Sin has met its match and brokenness will be no more. And as we come to the communion table this morning, we're reminded that the only way that brokenness is healed is through brokenness. The only way that brokenness is healed is through brokenness. You see, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. On that night, he also took the cup and he said, this cup, he gave thanks for it, and he said, this cup is is the covenant of my blood, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. He says, drink of this, all of you. See, brokenness compels us. It compels us to come to the table and find healing and wholeness that our hearts so long for. So you don't have to be a member at Christ's community to come and participate. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are welcome at his table. Um, if you're not yet sure where you stand with Christ, maybe this is your first time here or you've kind of been kind of figuring out who is Jesus, what does this mean to follow him, I would encourage you to use this time just to continue to reflect on those questions. What has God done for you? How he has entered the world for you? Um, if you when you come to our, uh, our communion stations, both uh, two up here and two in the back, come in groups of four or five, gather around the table, take the bread and then dip it into the cup and then all partake together as a group. Um, I know that these aisles are a little bit congested and narrow, um, especially if you're new, you might be thinking, how's this going to work? If you need to bump into someone or kind of step over someone, that's just fine. That's how we, that's how we roll here. Um, and take your time. Don't feel rushed. Come to the Lord's table. Brokenness compels us to come to the, the one who is broken for us, that we might be healed. Come to the Lord's table when you're ready.